0: Good evening, and welcome to an evening of tribute for Beis Nisan, 100 years from the histalkus of the Rebbe Rishab, 5th Reb of Chabad. Tonight's special online fabrengen and uh, gathering is in the merit of a speedy and complete recovery for Rebbe Zev Yechezkel Hakain Ben Mindel. Hashem should send him and all those in Kalal Yisrael in need of a right now, a speedy and complete recovery. Many of us had plans, or at least thought about how we were going to spend this day, Beis Nissen, a hundred years, a hundredth the Yurtzeit of Anossi. And uh, those plans obviously did not come to pass a man tracht und gott lacht. Nevertheless, here we are, through the aid of modern technology, and the ebishter was makdim refuah, at least to this makkah, the Maka of isolation, and allowed us to uh, to connect, at least virtually. Thinking about our situation now in quarantine or self-quarantine, or isolation while we're trying to observe Beis Nissen, causes one to think about Rebbets and Chana's memoirs, where she describes being in Gullus, in exile, with her husband on Beis Nissen. It's um, difficult not to think of those passages for one who's read them. Let, let me start, though, to describe how she describes the very first Beis Nissen. The, the day of the Hestalkas itself while they were still in Bne- Dnieper Petrovsk, before they went into exile. She says the news came and her husband, the Rebbe's father, was devastated. He began to grieve beside himself in tears. And immediately Sidim would come to the house and all those who were sympathetic to Sidis And eventually the house was full of people who were there, all in tears, crying, mourning, Revitzen Chana writes, it was interesting, there was one particular guy who was a free thinker, uh, a modern guy, a secular Jew, and um, he showed up, and they weren't sure exactly what he was doing there. He wasn't religious in any way. Um, And he sat with them and he started crying, and he was crying. Somebody asked him, why are you crying? He said, somebody who was so important to so many Jews is worth crying over. And in fact, Rebbe Zunehana writes in her memoirs how after this Jew got up and he left, the her her house, somebody could see that through the window as he was walking home, <clears throat> he was still weeping uncontrollably. Rebbe Zunehana also writes about two different years <clears throat> in exile, one in Chile and one in in uh, Al-Ma'ata, where <clears throat> they were living in exile, and uh, she describes how. Her husband, that of his father, at one point he said, And then she saw how all of a sudden he wanted to express himself. He wanted to do something proper to mark the day. He wanted to express himself through, through chsidis, but he didn't have a pen to write with. He didn't have anyone to say a mime or two. So uh, he said, thinking will have to suffice and he went into a deep meditative state for over an hour and he thought about the Rebbe Rashab. We are uh, isolated to a certain extent but Baruch Hashem, we are not alone. We have this God-given gift of technology to connect with each other and not just to think about the Rebbe Deshab, which surely all of us will do throughout the 24 hours of the Yorzeit, but we will also have a chance to speak, to express ourselves. Tonight's evening of tribute is going to focus on the last years, the final period of life leading up to the Estalkus. But uh, before we we fast forward to those years. I want to give just a very brief background. This is not a biography. We're not going to be able to speak about everything that happened in the life of the Rebbe Rashab. To discuss all of the accomplishments and the contributions of the Rebbe Rashab as a leader would uh, take many, many, many hours and even then it would obviously be uh, insufficient. We're going to focus on just a very certain period, but before we do, I want to give a, a basic background uh, very quickly. The Rebbe Rashab was born that's 1860. And by the time he was 21, he was orphaned. His father, the Rebbe Marash, the fourth Rebbe of Chabad, passed away at the young age of 48 years old. And after that, the Rebbe Rashab uh, refused to take on the mantle of leadership. He had an older brother, the Aaron. And for 11 years, for 11 years after the passing of the Rebbe Marash, the Rebbe Rashab refused to accept the Nisius. Finally, later, after the Raza left town, so the Rebbe Rashab accepted being Rebbe. And in his 38 years as Rebbe, the Rebbe Hashab delivered 2,000 Maimorim, over 2,000 Maimori Chassidus. And in a certain way, we can say that the enduring legacy of the Rebbe Hashab was the contribution to, to Chassidus that was novel, that we're going to talk about later in this uh, presentation. The, the, the Rebbe HaShab is known as the Rambam of Chassidus, just like the Rambam took the vast sea of Tere Shabal Peh and he organized it and he systemized it and he put every subject where it belongs so too the Rebbe Shabb took this vast sea of Taitus HaChsidus and explained and organized systematically different sugyes, different subjects within HaChsidus We're going to speak about this, in Hashem, toward the end of the presentation but I want to continue with the biographic overview um, Related to all of the prolific Chassidus that the Rabbi Hashab wrote would also be the establishment of a yeshiva for the purpose of studying Chassidus, or a yeshiva which incorporated within it the study of Chassidus. The uh, the yeshiva Teim Chitmimim was founded on Tes Vav Elul Tofresh Nun Zayin. And the novel thing about the yeshiva was that uh, there had been Chassidische yeshivas before, but this was a yeshiva that actually had Chassidus as part of the curriculum. That uh, within the schedule of the day, as part of the the learning, there was a uh, a time for studying chassidus and studying chassidus in a manner of dibuk uh, and pilpel hatalmidim, meaning through discussion and uh, with teachers and mentors, and uh, guiding and, and teaching uh, classes. And this itself was a novelty, which we'll talk about later in the presentation. Uh, the name Taim by the way, was not given right away. The yeshiva was started, didn't have a name yet, was given the night of Simchas Teira, just a few weeks after its uh, being founded. And based on the the Temimim, Hei then the Rebbe Rashab, the night of Simchas Teira said, this should be the name of the yeshiva, and the students of the yeshiva are called Tamimim. uh There's also a famous sicha we should mention, Kol HaYeitzei L'Melchemes Based David, which is sort of a, 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 a time capsule, if you will. It was delivered in 1900 at a tumultuous time, sort of the entry of the world into the modern era. And the Rebbe Shah is speaking about all the winds of change that are going on in the world at that time, particularly for the Jewish people and outlines and lays out a course for enduring that change and standing up to it and, and not compromising. And uh, this was an incredibly important message. And we see historically the influence of the students of of Chetimimim and, and the students of the students, those who were influenced and inspired by the Rebbe Rishab's courage and, uh, and leadership during a time of uh, great uh, instability in the Jewish world. But the, 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 the part of the Rabbi Shabbat's life that we're going to focus on tonight is just the last few years. And that's really, in a way, the story of World War I and the Communist Revolution in Russia. So let's slow down. And we're going to focus now on this period of time, starting from the summer of 1914 until the spring of 1920. Little less than six years. World War I began with the uh, execution or the assassination of Archduke Franz Ferdinand of Austro Hungary. And uh, within a few weeks of that time, there was a declaration of war formally made. And that occurred on Tishabov. Tishabov is a day of great calamity historically throughout the ages for the Jewish people. World War One was certainly a calamity for the Jewish people. In addition to all the havoc that war brings, as well as the persecution of the Jews that always would occur when society was destabilized, we know that World War One really didn't end when it officially ended. There was a little bit of a ceasefire, and uh, World War Two was the continuation of World War One. And World War Two, we know, for the Jewish people, was the most devastating era, at least in the modern age, for the Jewish people. World War One brought with it, uh, of course, the danger of fighting the, the front lines, the, the actual uh, warfare. But in addition to that, and this is something that is not as well known, there are societal changes that come with the onslaught of an invading country Germany was at war with Russia Germany at that time was called Prussia so Prussia was entering Russia and interestingly a lot of the a lot of the situation in the times of the Rebbe Rashab with Prussia coming into Russia was very similar to the first Rebbe of Chabad the Alter Rebbe when Napoleon was coming into Russia. How is it similar? Well, it's known that many Jews were actually very happy when Napoleon was sweeping across Europe because he was a liberator. He was bringing uh, emancipation. And even the Rebbe conceded, he admitted, that in the short run things would be better for the Jews, at least materially speaking, but that spiritually it would be devastating, that Napoleon was an evil force. Similarly, when the Prussians were coming into Russia, many Russian Jews welcomed this. They weren't particularly fond of the Tsar, and they were happy. They, they thought that the, the, the Prussians were more modern, maybe more liberal, more open-minded. And uh, historically speaking, for many Jews, actually there were certain immediate benefits that, that occurred at that time. But the Rebbe Hashab was very against Prussia, and especially against the Kaiser himself, Kaiser Wilhelm II. In fact, it's known that the Rebbe Deshab, along with the Feidik Rebbe had seen Kaiser Wilhelm. They had been in Russia, I and mean, they had been in, in Prussia. Um, that Rebbe Deshab used to travel for health reasons. He used to go to different spas, different places for treatment. So he'd been in Prussia. He'd been in Berlin. He'd been in the in the major cities there, and. Uh, actually at one particular on one particular occasion Wilhelm was giving a speech and the Rebbe Rashab was standing with the Friedrich Rebbe with him and Wilhelm locked his eyes on the two of them years later when world war one broke out the Rebbe Rashab said to the Friedrich Rebbe says you remember when we saw him remember when he saw us and his face turned white do you know that even at that time that 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 antisemite was already thinking of all the evil that he was going to do meaning that in some ways at least bimarshava as a plan all of the the horrors of World War one were already brewing in Wilhelm's mind when uh, the that E saw him in in Germany years prior there's also a story um that's uh very interesting to tell, not regarding the, the Kaiser himself, but uh, the Kaiser's chair and the Kaiser's desk and the Kaiser's pen. This is a story that the, the Firik Rebbe told on a couple of occasions, and it's recorded in the Sefer Sichus. Um, and it involves the Rebbe Rishab and the Firik Rebbe were in a park in a uh, sort of like a, a special VIP uh, park where you had to have cloth on your shoes you weren't you weren't allowed to walk there with uh, regular uh with boots and uh, in fact the uh, philip says that i guess maybe they gave out certain cloths that you were supposed to put on your feet before you went into the park and they didn't want to use the cloths because they were worried maybe it had shotness so he said they tied their handkerchiefs around their their shoes uh, so they, they, they could go into the park but then there was like a VIP section within a VIP section and that was only for the Kaiser that was like the the, the velvet ropes you know that was the the uh, the Kaiser's own personal area. It sounds like it was some sort of a gazebo or some type of a, you know, like a structure there in the park and uh, the Rebbe Shab told the Fidic Rebbe he says I want to get in there make, get, make sure you know take care of it so the Fidic Rebbe bribed the guard bought him a drink and then he gave him the change from the drink and made sure that the guard should disappear for a while. And the Nebuchadnezzar sat at the desk he sat in the chair and he took the pen, the royal pen of the Kaiser and he wrote. It was uh, part of the Hemshech Samach Vav, one of the well-known Hemshechem. And he wrote the beginning at least of the Mimer. Ve'yelech ish me'beis levi, and he told the 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 fidik rebbe afterwards that the harchovas Adas that he got the breitkait the uh, the relaxation that it brought sitting in such a sumptuous setting in the in the royal gazebo with the royal desk the royal chair the royal pen he said that enabled him that gave him that gave him the the uh, mental space so to speak to begin to write that mimer. Uh, but the Rebbe Rishab was very opposed to, to the Germans, what he felt was a modernizing influence. And, uh, and similar to the Alter being against Napoleon, the Rebbe Rishab was a little bit uh, on his own in being uh, opposed to uh, the, the oncoming uh, Germans. But the main reason they left Lubavitch was because of the fighting. It just was not safe to be there any longer. So, uh, after 102 years of the word Lubavitch being synonymous with the of Chabad, the Rebbe Rashab had to pick up and, and leave. Not just the town of his birthplace, but the town that was identified with this unique movement since the times of the Mittler Rebbe. But uh, it was impossible to stay any longer, and uh, so they moved. And before they moved, what was the Rebbe Rashab dealing with? Assembling the Ksavim, the manuscripts. This was very, very important. They were, think about generations of Rebbeim in this town, in this small town, and there were all these manuscripts, Hasidic manuscripts, that hadn't been printed, hadn't been copied, and uh, that were in the holy handwriting of, of the Rebbeim. So th- this, was, this was one of the primary occupations of Rabbi Rebbe Hashab during this time, was assembling these manuscripts and, and, and getting them out of Lubavitch and bringing them with him. Now, he did not manage to bring them with him to Rostov, or at least not all of them. And, in fact, they were thought to be lost. It was thought that many of them were lost, or most of them were lost. And then, with perestroika, with the opening up of the Iron Curtain, they were actually discovered in 1990, and the Rebbe spoke about the need to reclaim them. And obviously, that is a situation that is ongoing. And we should uh, hear good news about that uh, immediately. Um, And then, in Rostov, the Rebbe Deshav was very much involved with organizing the manuscripts that he had that he had with him. So during that time it was very much, even though it was a time of great upheaval and 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 um, you know being moved from his from his, uh, his, his from Lubavitch from the place associated with his leadership and having to relocate. But the Rebbe Deshav was extremely immersed in Kabbalah at that time, and in fact. Even in the last couple of years, not only did Eber Shab continue to write chsidis, but he became extremely prolific. In in, in Tofresh Ayin Ches, 1918, there was a mimer for every Shabbos, for every single Shabbos. And then in Tofresh Ayin Tes, in 1919, there were 79 mimer. That means more than a mimer a week. And this was at a time of, 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 of the most tumultuous destabilization. Now, there was no travel. It was not safe. It was wartime. And because there was no travel, there was no communication. They didn't have communication back then like we have today. Especially in Russia, it was more primitive than elsewhere in Europe. So there was no communication, because communication required travel in those days. So there was, uh, and to a great extent there was uh, isolation and people didn't have news, they didn't know what was going on so Chassidim who were still uh, up in white Russia, they didn't know what was going on with the Rebbe Deshab. and then the Rebbe Deshab in in Rostov didn't know what was going on, at least with the uh, with Chassidim. they didn't necessarily even have news about the war, at least not reliably and not, not very uh, quickly so it was, it, was a, it was a time of, of, of great uh, isolation and, and yet the Rabbi Shabb during that time immersed himself in, in Chassidus in a way almost uh, unprecedented even for him, even for the Rambam of Chassidus who was so prolific and, and produced so much Chassidus in the years prior. Now, the situation got even worse because in addition to World War I right in the middle of a world war there was a revolution there was the communist revolution and all of the upheaval that that brought and then (laughs) if that's not enough for you there was a civil war there were different factions there were different parties among the communists themselves vying for power now the, the party or the faction that we need to know about are the Bolsheviks the Bolsheviks were the ones um, ultimately who who were who were victorious and took control and they were notoriously notoriously anti-religious and they, these were the ones who the Rabbi Rashab and, and all Khsidim and all Yidin had to worry about the Bolsheviks were fighting, but uh, eventually they, they prevailed and they came into Rostov. They weren't originally in Rostov, but then they arrived in Rostov and that was in Tevis of Tov Reish Pei. okay? Talking about the winter of 1920. Tevis of Tov Reish Pei. the Bolsheviks arrive in Rostov. Now, from that point on, okay, we're talking about Tevis, Shvat, Adler Nissen. We're talking about the last four months of the Rebbe Rashab's life. And here's where I want to slow down even more and talk about what transpired, some of the amazing events that transpired during that time. The last maimir of the Rebbe HaShab is known as Rachis Gaim Amalek. That Maimir was delivered on Purim. Purim, you know, is Yud Dalet Adar, so you're talking about literally two weeks and a couple of days before the Rebbe HaShab's Histalkus. You're talking about in that Kufa, right when the Bolsheviks have arrived in Rostov and they are trying to establish control and they are trying to show who is boss. And they are extremely anti-religious. They made, a, they made a curfew in town. You were not allowed to leave your house, if anyone can relate to that. Um, and you were not allowed to gather, if you can relate to that. And the Rebbe Deshab decided that they were going to Febreng, for Purim. Well, just the decision to Febreng, for Purim, in that situation, was extremely courageous. Some people even thought reckless. The Vedic Rebbe describes um, voicing some uncertainty, I suppose we can say, I am not sure if we can say it that way, but Expressing some type of hesitation to his father regarding uh, actually holding the poem Fabrengen. and the Rebbe Rashab told him, "Hub don't be afraid, ganz sein, we're going to be fine, we're going to be intact, we're going to be whole, complete." And then he said, "Ich as sein, i don't mean that we're going to be intact we're going to be fine in a room within a room you know hidden away sequestered ich mein i mean azmira ganz sein that we're going to be fine mit de yitzia with the whole spreading forth and and going out sort of you know without having to uh... Hold ourselves in without having to uh, quiet things down. Don't worry, we're going to be absolutely fine. And they held the and they held uh, the gathering. Tension was very, very thick. And in the middle of the uh, gathering, the Bolsheviks showed up with a search warrant at the Rebbe Deshab's house. That's where the gathering was. They were in, They were in his house. He had to be at home. Everyone had to be at home. And uh, they went to the door, and they told, <laughs> they told the Bolsheviks the Eb is busy right now. You got to come back later. <laughs> just that, just that took uh, audacity. So they left, and they continued to febreng. And uh, again, I don't know how to describe this, but the, the Friedrich Rebbe describes expressing apprehension about the situation. And then, to top it all off, the Rebbe the Rashab started raising funds for the yeshiva for Temke Temimim. Now, collecting funds that itself is, is is an offense. That that's that's like uh, you know a crime during wartime. And they were collecting money and they're putting money on the table. And they had mashka. They're saying There was mashka on the table, and the Vitegreb was concerned about the money on the table and the mashka on the table. Both of these things enough were enough to uh, get them in a lot of trouble. Bolsheviks weren't weren't joking around. I mean, they were violent, bloodthirsty killers. Bolsheviks came back, and this time they came in, and uh, the Rebbe Rashab said. I'm not, I'm not afraid of them, I'm not bothered by them. He said, we're going to say, a and the Rebbe, the, the Rebbe wanted to, to put the money at least under the table. At least, you know, show some, <laughs> maybe even the, the, the Bolsheviks saw it, but at least, you know, show some respect, you know. <laughs> and uh, the Rebbe Risham said, no, we'll leave it on the table. I mean, it's a miracle. I mean, what, what we're describing here is a miracle. It's not a normal thing that the, the Bolsheviks should come in and see a gathering in a house, money on the table, mashka on the table. It, it, it's, it's not normal that nothing happened. It's not normal that everyone wasn't arrested, or at least, you know, uh, you know that, 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 that even worse. And then Rebbe Shab said, they're going to become completely nullified they're going to become completely uh, and and don't worry about it. And I'm going to say a maimer and they're going to be completely ma- nullified. And then the Rebbe Shav started to say the maimer, reishis gey and he sang the maimer with the Bolsheviks there. And he said the whole maimer, and the Bolsheviks left. Mamish Nisei nisim, overt miracles. And this is the last Maimah that we have from the Rebbe Rishab. It's also the first maima we have from the Firik Rebbe. That after the Hestalkus, the and after the Shiva, the first maima that the, the Firik Rebbe said was a uh, reiteration of the maima Rishat Goyim Now, I want to talk also a bit about, briefly, some of the things that happened during those last uh, that, that, those last months, there was actually an opportunity for the Dehop to leave Rostov. Um, there was a plan. There were Rostov is in Russia, very close to Ukraine. It's actually it's on on, on, on a river which I believe it leads into the Black Sea. And uh, on the other side of the Black Sea is Turkey. So there were Georgian government officials who had some type of offices in Rostov. And they also were leaving, and they were going to relocate to Turkey. And with uh, special connections they had, and with money from the uh, who uh, the Rebbe Rashaab said about the Rebbe Shmuel, uh, is mein that his pocket, his wallet is my, my wallet. So that was all arranged that they were going to leave. And in fact, the famous picture, the one and only picture that we have verified of being the Rebbe Rashaab, where does it come from? That was the, those, those, that last period, those last days, that was a photograph that was taken for a passport photo in order to emigrate to Turkey and uh on the day that they were supposed to leave and the Rebertsonstein and had agreed to it and everything was everything was prepared everything was ready and on the last day before they were supposed to go um the Ashab came out of his room and he said we're not going it's not happening the the trip to turkey was uh, was off was canceled and uh Nebuchadnezzar asked what he should do and uh, Rebbe Shabb says you you should stay with me. So uh, during that time as we know we discussed there was great uh, upheaval in the world. Uh, Another thing we should mention that Rebbe Shabb was involved in remarkably was, he started a publishing company, the uh, Ezra pu- Publishing Company. And that's the Tila Hashem Siddur, that uh, the, the Siddur that we have, the Tila Hashem, where does that come from? It comes from these printings that were done in this, in the middle of World War One, And in fact, the, the Rebbe printed two Siddurim, one which is Nusachari, that we use, and one which is Nusach Ashkenaz Nusach Ashkenaz Now let's get to the, the very last days In the days right before Bais Nisan Rebbe Rashab took ill and the name Chaim was added to, uh, to the Rebbe's holy name Motzah Shabbos, the Rebbe Rashab asked for coffee so that he could make Havdollah. Interestingly, this is very similar to the Alter Rebbe, who also was Nishtalak on a Shabbos and also asked for coffee so that he could make havdalah on coffee for his Histalkos. It is known also that uh, the, 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 the Rebbe spoke about the fact that uh, when somebody passes away out of Shabbos, this is very good. It is called Semenyofalei, uh, it is a good sign for him because uh, he leaves this world and he heads right into the rest of Shabbos. So that is considered good for the person who passes away. Um, if a person leaves the world Matzah Shabbos, that is not so good. It's a. Uh, the Rebbe asks regarding the Istalkas of the Altar Rebbe, how come when the Tzemach describes it, he specifically calls it Matzah Shabbos? At least he could have, like, you know, hidden it, he could have called it. right? But, I mean, that's a question how the Rebbe asks it. And uh, the Rebbe brings out an incredibly powerful point, which is. It's a good sign for him. For the person who is passing, it is good for him to leave the world and go straight into Shabbos. It is much more of a smooth transition for the soul that is leaving. It is good for him. But but since when is Yiddishkeit about what is good for you? And especially Anasi. Anasi has nothing for himself. Anasi is completely only there for his flock, for his people. So Anasi would want to leave the world at the time It's not best for him best for the Jewish people. And when do we need the, the most help? What is the most dangerous time of the week? Matze Shabbos. That is why we say after Avdollah, don't be afraid. It is a scary time. It is a scary time. Leaving the, the tranquility of Shabbos and going into the, into the, the work days. A mundanity again. It is a perilous time. It is a dangerous time. Th- that is a time when we most need a spiritual boost. So Anasi, if he has his uh, druthers, he'll be an at the time. We know that the stalkus of a tzaddik, even though it's an incredibly painful event and it's like the, uh, the, the destruction of the temple, it's like the breaking of the tablets, but it's also a time of incredible spiritual revelation because it's the culmination of all the work of that tzaddik throughout his lifetime. So it's a time when there's a special light and energy that's radiated to all those who are close to the tzaddik. So if a tzaddik can pick a time when he can radiate extra energy and extra light to those who are close to him, he'll do it at the time when it's of most benefit to those who are close to him, which is Matzi Shabbos. As we know also, and it's, uh, it's actually written on the Matzeva, uh, at the oil, the uh, Gimel Thomas was also uh, Motze Shabbos. At any rate, during that evening, the Fiddik Rebbe was uh, beside himself, and he began to cry. And the Rebbe Rashab said to him, his pilos his pilos in other words you're emotionally reacting brains means intellectual power it's one of the trademarks of Chabad that even in this time of incredible emotion that Eber wanted his son and his successor to act with with self-control of intellect. And then, close to his passing, the Rebbe Rishab said, Ich gehe in Himmel. I'm going in heaven now. I'm going to heaven now. Diksovim the manuscripts, the Hasidic manuscripts, the writings of, of Hasidic teachings, Lozich Eich, I'm leaving to you. Now, these words, just, just these short few words, which were among the last words that the Rebbe said before his passing, are obviously significant. Everything that a Rebbe says is significant. Everything that a Rebbe says is packed with meaning. I'll just mention as an aside. After the Histalkus, there was a Febrengin, with the, uh, with the Friedrich Rebbe. And uh, the Friedrich Rebbe was asking Chsidim, who knew the Rebbe Rashab, to a word from the Rebbe. Repeat something you heard, a word that you heard from the Rebbe. And Chsidim, being humble, nobody wanted to speak up. And the, the, the Friedrich Rebbe was saying, No, I want to hear something. Somebody, please, I want to hear a word from my father. Tell me something that my father one, once told you. And uh, finally, one of the Chsidim said, Okay, fine. I, I, I remember something that the Rebbe once told me. Meaning, uh, the Rebbe Nishma in the, the Rebbe Rashab, he says, the Rebbe once told me, lechayim. And uh, people smiled, they laughed, because that's cute, right? The Rebbe once told me lechayim, right? Um, and uh, the Feider Rebbe got very serious, and he said, mit dem With my father's word, lechayim, don't 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 play around. In other words. Maybe some people, maybe most of us, you ask, you know, they say, what's the definition of a boring person? You ask them how they are, and they really tell you, right? So most of us are very perfunctorial, where, you know, it means we, you know, we say one thing, we're thinking another thing, uh, you know, how are you doing? Great. How are the wife and kids? Fantastic. How's business? Beautiful. Okay. Baruch Hashem. See you later. And the whole thing was on autopilot, right? But when a Rebbe says something, he puts his whole heart and soul into it. So everything that a Rebbe says is significant. And certainly something that a Rebbe says just before he leaves this world. So there's a sicha, sicha is chavzayin. It's a short sicha, it's only about four and a half pages. And the Rebbe explains precisely the meaning, and especially for us, in these last words. Ich gei in Himmel, diksovim la mentioned at the beginning of this uh, presentation how uh, the enduring legacy for us of, of the Rebbe Hashab is is the that he left and that's and, and I also mentioned uh, the the yeshiva temchetimimim, where studying this is part of the program so now I want to bring that back and I want to discuss some of that in relation to these last words the the uh, the Rebbe speaks about the idea that Tzadikim Damim Lebeiram says in Medrash that the truly righteous are similar to their Creator. In what way? Perhaps in many ways, but specifically that when Hashem gave us the Torah, that's not a book that Hashem wrote, that's Hashem in a book. The word Anoichi, as is known, is a Roshatevis, an acronym. Ano nafshik Savis Yehovis. Anoichi, I, I'm the God who took you out of Egypt, which is the first of the Ten Commandments, is an acronym for Ano nafshik soves Yehovis. I wrote myself and gave myself through the medium of Torah, so that when we take Torah, we're not just getting a class from Hashem; we're getting Hashem. Torah is Hashem in the form of Torah, and tzaddikim demi laberam. The truly righteous do the same thing. When you, learn, when you learn something that a tzaddik said, you're not just learning something he said so that you can quote it, so that you can know what he said. You're actually getting the essence of the tzaddik. The tzaddik puts himself in his teachings. Or like the Rebbe said about Pirkei Ovis, why does it say about the different tanoim? "Huhaya Hoya he used to say. Hu Hoya, what he was? Eimer, that's what he said. He put himself into his teaching. Okay. So, if that's so, if the Rebbe Rishab leaving us Chassidus is like Hashem giving us Torah, why did the Rebbe Rishab say, I'm leaving you the manuscripts? He should have said, I'm giving them to you. Right? Like, Anna. Anonashik Sovis Johovis, I gave I gave myself. Yohovis means I gave myself. I should say I'm giving. Why do you say I'm leaving? So the Rebbe explains what's the difference between giving something to someone and leaving something for someone? If I give you something, it's unilateral. I give you something, I the giver am active, you the recipient are passive you don't have to do anything the whole transaction is one way I give it to you and that's it, now now it's yours regardless of what you do but if I leave you something that only means I made it available to you you have to lay claim you have to come take it that ever points out how, really, this is true of all of Torah. It says in the Gemara, based on uh, a drosha from the first capitol of Tillam, about, uh, mm-hmm. that In the Hashem He desires, and He meditates in the Torah all day and night. So the, 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 the sages point out, when it's His desire then it's Teras Hashem. Hashem's Tera. But when he actually puts in the sweat equity, and he meditates in Tera day and night, he puts in his own yegiya. then it's Tera Say. Tera Se goes on the person. His Tera means the person's Tera. It actually transfers over it to belonging to the person. In other words, you have to lay claim to Tera. You have to acquire the Tera. You have to Own it and make it yours. Now, what's the Chiddush? What's novel here about the Rebbe Rashab? If this is something we could say about all of Torah. What's novel here is that people would say this about studying Nigla. You learn a sugya in Nigla. You learn uh, a discussion of the sages in 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 the Talmud and they're arguing about uh, a legal principle and they give this case and this proof and this refutation and you have to understand it, you have to follow the discussion the, the argument, the back and forth, what they call the vitaria. And, and if you don't follow then it's, it's not yours, you don't really own it Tater's called muzzin, called food because it goes into you, then, then, it, then it becomes you like when you metabolize the food that you eat, it becomes your flesh and blood So everybody knows if you're studying Torah that you have to understand what you're studying in order to to make it your own. But uh, who says the same thing applies to Pnimiya Satayro? Mystical stuff. Spiritual stuff. Maybe for that you don't really have to understand it. Maybe for that you can't really understand it. After all it's spiritual stuff. You're learning, Gamara You're learning Sherno Gehasapara. So I know a I know a para. These are relatable things. It's talking about situations that I can relate to, things that I can see, things that I've experienced in my life. Okay, so now I just have have to work harder to understand what it's saying about those things, but I relate to those things. They're within my frame of reference. But you're learning Xidis, you're learning about Eirais, and Kalim, and Svirais, and Eilamais, and Nashamas, and malachim Come on, who can relate to it? Maybe you don't have to put in the same type of toil. Maybe it's good enough to believe it. I believe it. I trust you. I trust you. You know about the guy in the shul? Every Shabbos, the Rav would get up to say his drosha. The guy never made it through a drosha. He would always fall asleep before the end of the drosha. One week, the Rav got up to say the drosha, and the guy was already asleep, so the Rav woke him up, he says, Yanko, what are you sleeping for? I didn't even start yet. He said, Rabbi, I trust you, I trust you. Maybe, when it comes to Pnimiya Satayra, spiritual stuff that no one can really understand, I trust you, I trust you. Right? I, I'm sure that's what it says. I'm sure that's what it is. I'm not questioning. No, 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 you don't have to prove it. You don't have to explain it. I trust you. In fact, the devil says something very geschmack here. <clears throat> Uh, the, Rebbe says, the Rebbe says in the Sicha that that's the meaning of Kabbalah. What's Kabbalah? Kabbalah means mysticism, right? Jewish mysticism. Kabbalah, right? So, what does Kabbalah mean? Kabbalah means a Masada. It means it was Makubal Ishma Pi'ish, that someone received it. It's a tradition. Kabbalah means a tradition. But Kabbalah also means accepting. So, the Rebbe says maybe we could say that's also why the level of Said. Of the secrets of Torah, of Pnimus of Torah is called Kabbalah because that's the attitude people had toward it historically. They're like, I accept it. No, but do you understand? it? Yeah, I don't have to understand. I accept it. I'm sure it's all true. So the Chiddush was that Rebbe Rashab came and he said, No, we're going to understand this. Don't tell me all oh, the Himmel spiritual stuff. No, we're going to understand it. Now, the truth is, this is what the Altadabba started. The Altadabba started said, Chabad. Meichen, Chochme bin Adas, to understand Okay, But uh, as we know, each Nasi in each generation pushed the envelope. He took it even further. So for sure, the Alter Rebbe took spiritual concepts, which used to be considered unattainable, and he made them more relatable on 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 an intellectual level. But the Rebbe Hashem went even further than that. And this is what we were talking about at the very beginning of this presentation. Remember we mentioned that Rebbe Rishav was called the Rambam of Chassidus. He organized and he, and he systemized everything. He, and he explained all the different concepts. And we also mentioned that the Rebbe Rishav started a yeshiva, that had Chassidus as part of the curriculum. Those two things are really, really, really hallmarks of what the Rebbe Rishav did that was so unique. One, organizing, being a Rambam of Chassidus, that Eber said, this, this is what he wanted, he said, I want that people should learn a subject in Chassidus the way that they study a subject in Talmud. What does that mean? That when you're studying Shakra uh, a uh, back and forth, and you don't understand what happened, then you go find out, you go ask, you work on it, you figure it out. And if you don't understand, you, you can't sleep. People are learning Chassidus and they're inspired by it, Oh, it's very beautiful, uh, no, no, no. It's not beautiful. It's not inspiring. Understand it. What does it say? And in fact, that i have mentions over there that um, it's not enough to just be able to understand it. You have to understand it so well that you can say it in your own words. You have to be able to say it in your own words. And that's the hallmark of truly learning something properly. And in fact, that is where you see the difference between I give you something and I leave you something. I give you something, you didn't work for it. I gave it to you, okay? So I plop it in your lap, serve it to you on a silver platter. I leave it for you means, no, now come take it. Now you got to go, you got You got to put in some effort, lay claim to it. So the Rebbe says, it's like a teacher who's talking about something to a student that the student could never understand on his own. The teacher could eventually just give it to the student, what we call spoon feeding, right? But in that case, the student would never be able to say it in his own words. He would only be able to repeat it in the words that the the teacher used. But if it's, I'm leaving it for you, which it describes as the teacher forcing the student to work and understand it with their own mind, with their own brain, then what will happen is, the student will be able to say it in their own words. I heard somebody say once that they met the Rebbe's brother, Rabbi Yisrael Aya Leib, and they were having tea and talking Kabbalah until late in the night. And, you know, like three, four in the morning, uh, they were going through, say, the Reshtal and at one point, the Rebbe's brother said, "Eh, I got to stop now. Now I'm using the Zayars Lashen. What does that mean? It means the whole night that Eber's brother was discussing all the levels of Sederishtas, but he had his own words for them. When he got to the point where he was just using the words from the Zoya, he says, nah, now, I, now I don't really know what I'm talking about. I'm just quoting. Now I'm just saying what it says in the books. <laughs> How high could we get and say in was using our own lotion right? Um, but that's the point. The point is, I don't give it to you, I leave it for you. I make it available to you. Now lay claim to it, acquire it, own it, make it yours. Oh, and this is also the idea of a yeshiva. The what's a yeshiva? A yeshiva is what's the whole point of a yeshiva? You have dibuk chavedim and you have pilpil hatalmidim. That means you discuss things, you talk it through, you figure it out together, you ask questions, and when you don't understand, you go ask the mentor, and the mentor explains it to you, and then you don't understand the mentor, and you demand a better explanation and then you go repeat it to your friends, and your friends say, "Now nah, you don't know what you're talking about, and then you go back to the mentor, and then you come back and your friends say, you still don't know what you're talking about, this is the fun we have in yeshiva, right? so that, every yid who's ever learned yeshiva, knows the joy of doing that with a gemara, with a rasha, with a tesvis, with a marashah what the Rebbe Rasha innovated was, you can do this with a Mercedes." that we can argue like real Jews about understanding what it says in the